Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're here visiting this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're joining with us today. Uh, We're in the book of Mark this uh, winter and spring. We're looking at the second half of the book of Mark, talking about Jesus, this king who has come. And this morning we'll be in chapters 9 and 10. Be reading uh, in chapter 9 from verse 30 through 37, and then we'll flip over to chapter 10 and read verses 35 through 45. You'll find that on page uh, 845 and 846 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Uh, Before I read, let me just explain. Uh, This passage in chapter 9 comes right where we left off last week, and uh, we're combining it with with some verses in chapter 10 because in both these chapters, Jesus takes up a similar theme. So we're going to look and see how he addresses this with his disciples together this morning. So let's pray, and we'll come to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the privilege it is, um, though we might scarcely be aware of it, to be in your presence as we gather corporately today to worship. Um, We're reminded that uh, as you bend down low, as you hear our prayers, as you hear our songs, as you hear music being played, that we want you to be glorified in it. We want to bring our best to you. So right now we bring you our hearts. Would you do your good work in them by the power of your word and through your spirit? And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. The disciples went on from there and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "Uh, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking Are you able to drink the drink that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. 
as we're uh, going through this section in the book of Mark, this whole book is about uh, the fact that Jesus is the king who was to come. And it tells us, Mark talks to us about what it means to then follow that Jesus. Well, one of the, one of the main themes of the book of Mark related to that is what it means to, be, to actually be a disciple of Jesus. What it means to follow him. What it means to orient your life around who he is and what he calls us to. Last week we talked about the centrality of faith in the life of a disciple, in the life of a believer. Uh, And this morning, uh, we're looking at the the question that we're given here of, what does it mean to be great? What is is real greatness? If we're going to follow Jesus and value what he values, what does it mean to be great in the way that he calls us to be? What does it mean? So we're going to look at three things about greatness from the text here. We're going to see first the allure of greatness, and then the subversion of greatness. And the power for true greatness. First, the allure of greatness. We see this uh, played out for us in the lives of the disciples. These men who have been following Jesus as he has traveled through the countryside, healing people, teaching people, um, working miracles and wonders among them. They've spent months upon months with Jesus. If there is anyone that you would think that would sort of get what Jesus is all about at this point, it, it would be the disciples, the ones who have been with him. But then here we have uh, Jesus traveling and he notices his disciples muttering and speaking in hushed tones. And so when they get back to the house where most of the uh, Jesus' teaching directly towards the disciples happens, where all the crowds are gone, he takes them aside and he pulls them aside here and he says, uh, what were you talking about on the road? Uh, and it comes out that they were speaking about Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest disciple? You know, who's got the most power? Who does Jesus love best? Who's going to really be in a position to take over this franchise once Jesus is gone? You know, who's going to be able to handle that? Now, that was a, a central cultural question for them. Maybe you remember other times that Jesus said things like this. When you go to a feast and uh, you are given and, and you're told to go in and sit down, don't sit too high up on the, at the table, too close to the host towards the position of honor because the host might come and send you back down the line. Instead, sit near the bottom so that he might raise you up. He, they were in a culture that very much was always asking this question of, of where is the power, who's on top, how do we relate to one another? In ways that uh, on the surface are a little different than the ways our culture works, though underlying we have the same questions. They're talking about it on the road. Who's the greatest? And then if that weren't enough, and if this lesson weren't enough, later we see James and John, two of the three of the disciples who are closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, turning on their friend Peter, taking Jesus aside and saying, Lord, we want you to to grant us whatever, whatever we ask. And if you have children, you know that the... Um, you know, the, the request for certainty comes before the actual petition. You know, you know something is up. And Jesus says, what, what, what do you want me to do for you? Well, Jesus, when you come in your glory, we want the places of honor. We want to be seated at your right hand and at your left hand. Jesus asks, can you drink the cup? Can you undergo the baptism I'm going to go through? And they naively say, yes. The d- disciples here caught in this allure of greatness. Jesus is, uh, in in, in summing up these lessons to them, in in chapter 10, verse 42, he says, Look, look at the world around you. Look at the Gentile world around you. It is is consumed with the question of greatness. And the Gentiles, the ones in authority, lord it over those under their sway. But it's not to be that way for you. And it's not to be that way for us. 
the disciples were caught in the allure of greatness. But truth is, uh, you know, we are as well. That the, the disciples had this desire um, to, to, to know who was greatest. And they are, frankly, just in our eyes, at least, over the top in the way they asked this. I mean, give me a break. You're trailing behind Jesus and you're talking about who's going to be the greatest. I mean, this would be like one of us maybe going to one of our uh, home groups that meet during the week, one of our small groups and sitting down, you have opening prayer, and the leader of the group says, okay, we're, in a moment we're going to get to the scripture today that we're going to talk about, but, but first, uh, what I'd like to, for us to talk about is, is who in this group is really the greatest? And since I'm the home group leader, I think I'm pretty much starting out at the top. Uh, and, you know, you're welcome to challenge me on this. You know, how much time did you spend praying this week, right? Who's the greatest? Now, we would, we would never, I, I hope we would never do that in one of our home groups. <laughs> But that, that, that's sort of the over-the-top field that these disciples have. But the truth is, though, though we are more refined than that and our culture doesn't express it that way, we are asking those same questions. Who's the greatest? Who's got what it takes? Who gets the most favor? You know, we are grasping for uh, greatness ourselves. And frankly, when you get to something like verse 42 where Jesus talks about, here's how the Gentiles work. I mean, we look at that and maybe it just simply sounds like this. That's just the way the world works. Who's on top and who's on bottom? And even if I, you don't want to be buying into that yourself, it's the world that's thrown at you in your work and in your school and everywhere else. But we grasp for it ourselves in our own niches in life. That we might do that. Maybe we, that we'd just somehow be able to rise eventually to the top of our field or be the one to publish the groundbreaking paper. That we'd make the varsity team. We'd become uh, the president of our organization, our club. That we'd make the next military rank. That we'd found the successful company or that we would sell the successful company. That we'd become teacher of the year. That we'd make the money. That we'd buy the house. That we would finally achieve the dream. You see, we long for these things. For recognition. For respect. For rank, even. For recognition. And now, maybe you're thinking this. You know, I, I don't want to be considered great. I just want a little bit of recognition. I just want somebody to notice what I'm doing. Not great, but at least sort of good, right? Recognize the, the hard work that I do at the office or my contribution to the bottom line or how hard it is to uh, keep a room full of elementary school kids under control and to educate them, for keeping the house clean, the kids fed, the household afloat, for working every day for the good of this family. For what a good husband I am compared to some guys that are out there. For what a good wife I am compared to some of the women that are out there. For what a good kid I am compared to some of the kids. Mom and Dad, if you knew what some of my friends are like. You know, I don't want everybody just to think I'm incredibly great. Just at least a little bit great, right? Recognition, respect. You can, you can hear it in the background, can't you? I, I, I won't sing it for you, but... Uh, <laughs> But Aretha Franklin had it right, you know, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. Just a little, just a little bit of it, right? Just a little respect. <laughs> Recognition, respect, or rank. How about this? First place, first in line, corner office, head of department, top salesman, or even lead pastor. It's in every part of our world. And it starts early. Baby Einstein. And gold stars on the chart, most likely to succeed, valedictorian, magna cum laude, employee of the month, parking spot, evaluations, 
and 360-degree evaluations and 720-degree evaluations. I don't know how many degrees you can evaluate. But you see, there's this allure of greatness, and it is all around us. It's the very air that we breathe, and it's the very thing that infects our hearts as well. The allure of greatness. But the second thing we see from Jesus here is we see what he has to say to us about the subversion of greatness. The subversion of it, literally the turning from below of greatness as Jesus subverts our ideas of what it means to be great. And that's this subversion that he, that, that he gives us comes to us as a challenge because uh, it, it challenges the way we think. It's, it's what happens when Jesus says to the disciples, what were you discussing along the way? Or to James and John, you know, what do you want me to do for you? Notice that when Jesus comes and asks the disciples that question, what were you discussing? Notice how everyone gets quiet. It's when you ask that question and you think, oh no, what did I just do, (laughs) right? Because they know enough at that moment to know that they are missing something about Jesus. So in both these instances, Jesus takes these opportunities to state to them a lesson that he's been trying to get into their DNA for his whole ministry. And he tells them that true greatness is found not in being on top, but in serving. Greatness is not found from above, but from below. Chapter 9, verse 35, he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. Verse uh, 36, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Children in his culture, in this culture, were not idolized and idealized the way in ours. They are in ours. Children were very likely to die in infancy or childhood. The whole point of having children was that they would grow up and become useful and helpful. So when Jesus puts a child there, he's saying uh, that loving the least means loving those who are least productive, who are least able to make your life go well, that becoming great means laying yourself down for one such as this, a child like this. It says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Verse 44, whoever would be first among you, in chapter 10, verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's what he comes and says to them and to us. And honestly, this is one of the most challenging points of Jesus' teaching. It's one of the ways in which following Jesus goes most directly opposed to the rest of life around us. It's one of the most challenging realities about life in God's kingdom. One commentator puts it this way. At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Jesus does not exactly repudiate prominence and greatness, but he redefines them. The challenge is to be great in things that matter to God. Nothing is greater in God's eyes than giving, and no vocation affords the opportunity to give more than that of a servant. We can maybe romanticize the idea of what it means to be a servant and serve others, but the truth is it runs counter to our culture and it ran counter to theirs. And it ran counter even to the Gentile world that Jesus was speaking into as well. Uh, Greek culture, uh, one of the foundational thinkers, Plato. Here's what Plato said. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy when he has to serve? It runs against the good life, in other words. Because serving, taking the low road, taking the way of a servant, feels like death. Uh, For us, maybe it's a particularly poignant form of what Jesus has already said to his disciples and to us in chapter 8. He says, if anybody would would follow after me, let him take up his cross and follow after me. Let him take up his life 
be given over in death for me. Means that you might never be recognized in this life for the service that you give. And and I think I need to say something important about context here. Jesus is is not simply saying, look, in in church world, it's going to work a little differently than in the rest of the world. Okay, there it's how the Gentiles work. It's power over one another. But when, when, when you people get together, then it's going to be a life of service. So, uh, for instance, you know, church committees are going to be different than committees in the world. First, they're going to get something done. But second of all... <laughs> The members of the committee, they're not going to jockey for position. They're not going to care who gets the glory. They're going to work together, right? And when you meet other people who are Christians, then you you need to adopt this other personality, this other ethic of how we're going to treat one another. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is coming and saying that if you're going to be my people, then you're going to be my people this way through and through wherever you go and whatever you do. This is the way Jesus was with his disciples, but this is the way Jesus was with the world around him. As he interacted with those who were opposed to him, as he interacted with his enemies, as he interacted with Rome, as he was taken to a cross, as he took the low road instead of the high road. This is for all of life. And that means a lot of things for us. If you're a Christian businessman and you conduct your business just like everybody else in business around you, then something is wrong. If you're a manager at work and your management style is just like that of everyone out there who doesn't follow Jesus, then something is terribly wrong. If you uh, are assigned to group work at school or at work, working together on a project, and if you don't have a commitment to serve more than you are going to be served, then you are not hearing Jesus' words here. If you're volunteering with local groups in order to pad your resume rather than a from a heart to care for the least and the lost out of love for Jesus, then you are a clanging gong and a clanging cymbal. If your agenda for your own children's lives is for them to simply be quiet enough or obedient enough or successful enough to satisfy your own hunger for peace or achievement or pride, then you've lost the path of real discipleship. In your marriage, if your central awareness is the ways in which your spouse is not meeting your emotional or physical or spiritual or financial needs, then you're not hearing Jesus here. It means that profit and power cannot be the true bottom line. See, every bit of the way we see power and service is a spiritual issue, a facet of following Jesus. Where do you feel it? Where do you feel this allure of greatness Where do you feel here the challenge of Jesus saying, you must serve, you must lay your life down, you must be willing to be and pursue being last and least, not first and foremost. It comes to us as a challenge, this subversion of Jesus, but it also comes to us as an invitation. We're invited into this. Now think for a moment uh, about, a, about you know, someone out in Christian world that, that maybe embodies some of what Jesus is talking about. You know, if we were to pull it, probably a lot of us would come up, I mean, Mother Teresa, right? Uh, you know, someone who has is, who is given her life to the service of the least of these to the poor. She worldwide is known for that giving and selfless love. But most of those who have followed Jesus' way in this, You don't know their name, and you've never heard of them because they're doing exactly what Jesus called us to do, to serve and love the least, 
to be out of the limelight rather than in it. And certainly some faithful servants God puts into the limelight, but that is not most of us. See, if greatness comes through serving, then that means that greatness is actually in the, within the grasp of all of us. It's an invitation. Some of you will have read a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. And in it, he tells the story of Bill Joy. Uh, some of you may know this name. Bill Joy is the one who rewrote Unix, who wrote software that is fundamental to the entire Internet. He's one of the four founders of Sun Microsystems. He, Bill Joy is this revered name in the world of technology. In his field, he is considered great. And in uh, Outliers, uh, the author looks at this to the lesson that we tend to get from this when we see this sort of successful kind of world-changing sort of person. Uh, and, and we tend to think this, that greatness comes to those who work very hard, right, who put in the hours. But he goes on in this book to say it's really a lot more complicated than that. He says the greatness in any given field comes from a combination of several things. It comes from a combination of natural gifting. It comes and seems to hover in successful people around this kind of magic number of 10,000 hours of practice. And it comes from being in the right place at the right time. So Bill Joy was uh, brilliant, came into college somewhere around 16 or 17. He was a freshman at the University of Michigan in the year 1971. And that was significant because in 1971... The University of Michigan was one of maybe about four places in the world where you could come as a student and have access to computer terminals. Because they had just figured out within the last few years how you could have several people working on a mainframe computer at once and how you could get time on a computer and actually get hours in on a computer uh, programming. And uh, he was among a group of people who figured out at the University of Michigan that you could go down to the room, you could plug away in the middle of the night programming, and though it charged you for every hour, if you typed in a little simple formula, it would bypass the computer and you could just sit there for free for hours and hours and hours. And that's exactly what he did. And he programmed and he programmed. And somewhere in the middle of his graduate studies, he began to write the kind of software that is still in use now over 30 years later. And as he reflected on this, he said, yeah, middle of grad school, that's right about the time when I'd probably been programming for about 10,000 hours. You see, what Bill Joy actually shows us is that for the people who are going to become great, so much has to go into it, brilliance and opportunity and being in exactly the right time at exactly the right, in exactly the right place, and only a few people become great, the way the world considers great. But what Jesus says comes to us as an invitation. Let me tell you about true greatness, and it is offered for you. It is offered for me. It is accessible to all of us. In the book, The Great Divorce by uh, C.S. Lewis tells the story of uh, people in hell taking a uh, bus ride up to heaven so they can see what heaven is like. And one of the people who comes and goes on this tour is, is talking to uh, his angelic tour guide here. And, and he sees some people approaching through the forest. And he says this. Some kind of procession was approaching us. And the light came from the persons who composed it. First came the bright spirit, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, 
Though by the standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundred weight and their fall would have been like the crash of boulders. And then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honor all of this was being done. He goes on to speak of her beauty, but says, Only part do I remember of the unbearable beauty of her face. And he turns to his guide. Is it? Is it? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, said he. It's somebody you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance. Aye, she's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. His guide says, haven't you read your Milton, a thousand liveried angels lackey her? Well, then who are all these young men and women on her side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to the back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. And he asked, isn't that a bit hard on her own parents? No, there are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. As he walks across the place of heaven, who does he see? Who is this near goddess before him? Well, it's Sarah Smith. She lived right down the road. And she served the least and the lost. And she cared for those that God brought her way. She took the low road rather than the high road. You see, this offer of greatness comes to all of us, even in the most obscure places. But the question for us comes like this now. How are we going to live like this? How are we going to become people like this? How are we going to experience and know the power that we need for true greatness? The answer is if we're going to be people like this, then we have to experience someone serving like this, loving like this, taking the low road like this. We must experience that. We must see it. We must taste it. In other words, we must see Jesus. And first, we must see what he did. When he gets to the end of this discourse with his disciples, verse 45 of chapter 10, what does he say to them? He says, even... Uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As he speaks to his disciples about this kind of life of taking the low road, of this kind of life of service, what does he say at the very end? He says, even I came to live this kind of life. Even I came to demonstrate this. Even I came to put flesh and bones on what it means to serve the least, to care about an entirely different kind of greatness. In chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, he begins this section telling them about what he is about to do, that he is going to suffer and die for them. 
chapter 10, verse 38, he speaks of the cup that he must drink and the baptism under which he must be baptized. What's he referring to? He's referring to this Old Testament picture of drinking the cup of God's wrath, of being baptized in death. He's saying that I'm going to take on death for you. I'm going to do that so that I might ransom you. I'm going to drink the cup to the end. I'm going to take and be baptized by this baptism for you. It's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 when he spoke of what Jesus did in coming for us. He said, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, serve like this, love like this, take the low road like this. This mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see that we have to see, if we're going to become people like this, we have to see what Jesus did. But there's more to it than just that. It's not enough just to see it out there. We must um, see it not simply in the abstract and at arm's length. We must see it not simply as an example for us to follow. We have to do more. We have to take in what he did. We have to receive what he offers because the gospel is for you and the gospel is for me. It's not something simply that he did out there. We have to take it in and see that it is something that he did for us, for me, for you. You have to see and let your heart be warmed by the fact that this Jesus stepped out of heaven for you. This Jesus took on the form of a servant for you. This Jesus went to the cross to this uh, humiliating death for you. This Jesus who was the king of heaven stepped down and stepped onto a cross where he was naked and crucified under a sign that said king of the Jews, a crucified king for you. He did it for you. Jesus drinking this cup, undergoing this baptism for us. As you take that in, and as you see that we are called to serve in a way that we have first been served, that we are called to go out into life with this kind of service, with this kind of power, it comes only from tasting that kind of power given to us, that kind of sacrifice laid at the ground for us. And as it does, it is going to change not simply our actions, but also our hearts. See, Jesus says this to us, not simply so that we can just go out and do something different. Today I'm going to take the low road. Today I'm going to serve instead of being served. Today I'm going to give myself away. And we say it through gritted teeth. Instead, he came and gave himself for us so that he could shape us into people who could now be something different. A people who could now be the ones who lay our lives down gratefully, freely. Who take the low road because it is the right road. Because it is the road walked first by our Savior Jesus. Who can now let go of the things, the applause, the recognition of the world. And even when we have it, even when we're admired, even when we're well thought of, even when we achieve in ways the world recognizes, that we can hold it so loosely that it is not what grabs our hearts. Because our hearts have been grabbed by a person, the person of Jesus, 
who has done this very thing for us. See, only this, tasting and knowing and taking in the love of Jesus, can free you to serve, to love, to be like Jesus. He comes and says this to us. If you're going to follow me, then you must take the low road. If you're going to follow me, then you must serve rather than be served. If you're going to follow me, then you're going to have to reorient yourself so that you see that greatness is not what you ever thought it was. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to say no and turn from the myriads and myriads who make up the audience in our lives and turn instead to an audience of one, of God himself, who values this low road that he walked for us first. So let me leave us just with uh, four questions for you this week as you think, maybe for your family as you talk or your home group as you meet. These four questions. First, what kind of greatness do you crave? What kind of, honestly, what kind of greatness do you crave? And secondly, if you have children, what understanding of greatness are you instilling in your children? What, what are you training them in? What are you teaching them to think of as great in the eyes of this world and, more importantly, in the eyes of God? Number three, how would your life be different if you were to be a servant to all? And number four, what's holding you back? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And if we're honest with ourselves, it may well feel like a piece of ourselves has to die here. Because we long for attention and we long for recognition. And our hearts soar or plummet based on how many text messages we get, who reads our blog, what we got on the test. And how our family greets us when we walk in the door. What our supervisor thinks of us at work. So many things. But we are called to live before your eyes. We are called to be great by being low. And we can only do that because you have done that for us. Would that loom large in our eyes? And would you free us? That we might live like this, walking with you. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.